book of Romans uh, for the last several weeks. Um, And you might think, why are we still in Romans here on Resurrection Day? Let me just ease your mind. Romans 5 is the perfect home for Resurrection Day. So we're going to study Romans 5, keep plodding along. We here at Grace Church believe that every text of Scripture is ultimately about Christ's death and his resurrection. And so today, we get to study Romans 5, basking in the glory of what Christ has done in his resurrection. Now, if you're not familiar with the letter of Romans, and a letter like Romans, it is absolutely essential for us to track the argument. This means reviewing where we've already been. With his systematic approach to his gospel, Paul explains why our works, our religious devotion, and our morality ultimately fall short of providing the righteousness we need to stand before God. He argues repeatedly that none of us have an excuse for none is righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We have all broken God's law, and therefore we are all condemned. Now, seeing that we are void of any righteousness of our own, where then can we find righteousness? How can we be made right for the presence of God? Right, Because as unrighteous, unright people, no matter how good we think we are, we are still unfit to approach the throne of God. So the question is, where's that righteousness going to come from? I mean, we really have two options. Either that righteousness needs to be found somewhere, or else we are doomed for a life away from God, separated from him. And so that question that Paul gives us the good news, that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, a righteousness revealed through faith in Jesus Christ. It is by faith, not by works, by faith in Jesus that we are credited as right with the Lord. But how? Why is it necessary for us to have faith in Jesus, right? He doesn't just say, Paul's goal is not just to get you to see that justification is by faith. As good and as awesome as that message is, it's not just the means, right? We're justified by faith. It's the person by faith in Jesus. So how is it that Jesus is sufficient? How is it that Jesus, out of all the people in heaven and on earth, out of all the individuals, all the men that have ever walked this earth, how is it that Jesus is worthy? How is it that Jesus is sufficient to make us unrighteous sinners, to make us from being unrighteous sinners, to becoming righteous before God. As we will see in Romans 5, verses 12 through 21, justification, the right relationship with God, comes only in Jesus because Jesus is a new and better Adam. You see, our father Adam sinned, leading many, all, to death and condemnation. By contrast, Jesus obeyed even to the point of death. And because of his obedience, he has brought us life and a reconciled status with God. One man's sin brought death into the world, but the other man's death and resurrection brings eternal life. So, I hope you're ready for Romans 5, and I hope you're ready for this resurrection text that teaches us what we have in Christ. Now, before we dive into the text, I think it's absolutely essential that we address our presuppositions. That's just a big word for your assumptions, right? We see, we as Westerners, particularly as Texans, we like to stand or fall on our own. If we stand, then it should be by our own merits. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, right? We've got that kind of gospel in Texas. And most of the time, we believe that if we stand, it's to our own credit. I'm the one that did it. And then on reverse, if we fall, we tend to believe that if we fall, it should be because of my mistakes, not because of the sins of somebody else or the failures that someone else has done. So in our westernized view of things, in our westernized philosophy, we as individuals stand or fall based on what we do. The Bible does not have that philosophy. 
Just want to be very clear. The Bible does not have a philosophy that says you stand or fall on your own. In fact, the Bible conflicts is in contrast to that sort of individualism. You see, the problem with such thinking is that it's not only not consistent with what we find in Scripture, it's not consistent with the gospel at all. According to Scripture, you did not fall on your own. Moreover, you don't stand on your own. The Bible teaches a doctrine. We're going to get a little heady today, okay? It's Resurrection Day, so it lets me nerd out a little bit more than normal. The Bible teaches a doctrine known as federal headship. Federal headship. Now, don't be intimidated by the overly technical-sounding word. To give a very basic definition of it, a federal head is someone who stands in our place as a representative. They act on our behalf. They stand on our behalf. They stand in our place. And in Scripture, we find that there have been two heads over all of humanity. The first one was Adam, precisely. The first man, the first father, the human race. As Paul will show, all men, you and I included, are not sinners just because of our individual actions from sin, which we we certainly are, but we are condemned because of our father who sinned against God and introduced death into the world. But you see, there's a second head, which is Jesus himself, who, as we will see, reigns and lives as a new and better Adam. As Paul's about to claim in this text, Adam's fall was all of your fall, was all humanity's fall. But Christ's obedience, his life, his death, and his resurrection has brought us to our feet so that we may stand in the presence of God. We fell in Adam, we stand in Christ. That's the message of Romans 5. Now, having been raised in our Western, overly individualized culture where we stand on our own or fall on our own, many understandably struggle with the implications of this. Let me just read some of your minds here. How is it fair? How is it just that Adam's actions have led to my personal condemnation? I'm not Adam, I didn't eat from the fruit. So how is it fair that what he did applies to me? Should I not be condemned or commended on my own right, based on what I have done, not on what someone else has done? Now, here's the problem with that kind of thinking. First off, you're giving yourself way too much credit. Adam was a perfect man. Okay, God God chose the perfect representative for you. Sinless. Spotless, perfect mind, most brilliant man to have walked the earth. I mean, this is man at his very birth, at the very inception of creation, in perfection. No human has ever, ever, ever come close to Adam. None of us have, anyway. So if you think you would have done better, let me just assure you, you would not have. Okay? As much as we like to armchair quarterback... And when we watch NFL football plays, like, ah, oh, if I were Prescott, I'd have done that. Well, you're not Prescott. And you throw interceptions all the time. Let Prescott be Prescott. Let Adam be Adam. You would not have done better. But even that notwithstanding, there are reasons that we should accept the idea of a federal head, the idea that we have a representative in whom our actions are uh, committed, in whom our status is unrighteous or righteous is given. First off, federal headship or federal representation makes logical sense. I mean, in our own day, we can think of a number of examples that demonstrate the necessity of representation. Children have guardians, right? Children have guardians who represent the good and the, the, the necessities that the child needs. We have state representatives. We have legal representation for those who are accused. But even medically speaking, you just apply this philosophy to your own Bible. Guys, if your head gets shot, your foot doesn't live. Right? The foot can look perfectly fine, 
and not wounded and undamaged whatsoever. So the foot can say whatever it wants and may say, it's not fair that I'm dead because the head is dead. But it's impossible for the foot to live on when the head is dead. My friends, we are the offshoots of Adam. Our head has been shot. Shot through completely with sin and death. What do you expect that's going to happen to the rest of Adam's body? The rest of Adam's children. Second, in addition to making logical sense, federal headship paves the way for the gospel. So let me just tell you, if you reject the idea that you are unrighteous and worthy of death because of Adam, our father, who sinned, then what hope do you have of becoming righteous through the priestly work of Jesus? If we stand or fall on our own, then if we haven't fallen in Adam, there's no hope of standing in Jesus. You see, we want to accept the truth that another man's actions have condemned us so that now we can be consistent in our logic and accept that we are now righteous by another man's actions. We are sinful in Adam, righteous in Christ. If it's true, it is true that without federal headship, you cannot be guilty for Adam's sin. You cannot be held responsible. You cannot be condemned along with Adam. However, without federal headship, neither can you be credited as righteous through Jesus. So be careful how much you protest against this stuff. Because the very thing that you might bulk at and say, whoa, you're blaming me for another man's sin. Yes. So that you can be credited as righteous for another man's righteousness. That's the logic of the gospel. Third, some might reject federal headship because they think it denies individual responsibility. But as we've already seen throughout Romans, in particular, Romans chapter 2, verse 6, there's no denying that God will render to each one, each person, each individual, according to their works. We are indeed guilty of our individual acts of unrighteousness. However, there is a guilt that lies at the root of our sin. Our sin's not the first in history. There's a reason that we even have a sinful nature. The entire human race is corporately condemned through and through from head, heart to hands because of Adam. The corruption of the first man led to the corruption of all men and women. When Adam fell, so did his children. I'm going to prove all this in just a minute. Paul is going to work from this basic biblical understanding that all humanity is represented in Adam. Adam sinned and all humanity sinned with him. And though it is essential to understand this truth, Paul's primary point is not to point us to Adam. His primary point is to show us Adam so that we can then understand Christ. He's going to work his way up to the sufficiency of Jesus as a new Adam. That's the good news of the resurrection, is that we're not in old Adam's life in death anymore. We're in the new Adam's life without death. That's the beauty. There has been a shifting in who our federal head is. Jesus is sufficient to justify. If Adam's sin was effective and efficient to bring death to every single person, how much more is Jesus, the Son of God in flesh, and his obedient act of righteousness affecting and bringing life to many. And so, in order to understand Paul's message, he's got to come to grips with this. You may not think that you are as bad as all these other people. You may think that your sins just don't rank up like all the other people. My friends, even if your sins are not as bad as everybody else's, you still are condemned and under the wrath of God because you're a child of Adam. You were born as fire fodder. You were born in dirty, guilty, sinful nature because of the father, Adam. Now, what do you need? You, just like everybody else, need a savior. You see, my friends, what I'm trying to do today on this resurrection day is I'm trying to help you appreciate the resurrection even more. 
Because you see, if you don't think that you need Jesus as bad as all these other people, then the resurrection really means nothing to you. But when you come to realize that on your own, because of your association with Adam, even if you are better, even if you are better looking, even if you're a higher class, even if you are smarter, even if you're more moral, even if you have all the right views, it doesn't matter. You are a sinner condemned in Adam. In Jesus, though, who lives, you have life. Every head humbled. It's the great leveling. Whoever stands before God stands in Christ and in Christ alone. So if you don't understand this basic point, you're going to miss the gospel that Romans 5 has for us. Paul begins by describing our plight that has come because of Adam's sin. He writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Well, the one man in this passage is clearly Adam. What's the one sin that entered death, that that introduced death and sin into the world for all men? It's in Genesis 3, is it not? Where Adam rebels against God in the garden, where he takes from the fruit that God said not to eat, trying to become like God. And because he's trying to become like God, he introduces death. It was his sin But his sin did not affect him alone. It held consequences for the entire human race. You see, just by way of progression, you read about Genesis 2, you have perfect man, naked and unashamed. You get to Genesis 3 and you have the fall. And God says to Adam, for from dust you came to dust you will return. And it's it's an explicit highlight that death is coming because of sin. And then you get to Genesis 4 and 5. And you see all of Adam's children, and Seth died, and so on, all the way to Noah, all these generations, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, going on and on. All of Adam's sons died. His sin introduced death, which is why we have death now, even if our sin's not quite like Adam's. The phrase, all sin, all sinned, seems to suggest something more than just individual sin. See, a lot of people, they tend to think um, that what Paul is saying is that Adam sinned, he brought death into the world, now everybody else sins following Adam, and so they die as well. That's certainly true. But that point is the right doctrine from the wrong text. That is not the point of Romans 5. We can go to other texts, like Romans 5. 6.23, or Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, right? Those texts point to the fact that your individual sin leads to death. Romans 5 is not making that point. It's not talking about your individual sins, for all sinned. It's in the aorist tense for those who like Greek, which points back to a single action. What was this single action? When Adam sinned against God, so did you. When Adam ate from the fruit, he ate on behalf of all humanity. When Adam chose to be like God, he made that choice for his entire family. His sin, his actions, his singular action rendered all children of Adam as guilty sinners. Therefore, death comes for all. Paul doesn't let up, does he? Man, like, give us a break, Paul. You've spent Romans 1, 2, and 3 telling us that we're individually guilty, and now you're just saying, hey, just in case you don't buy that you're individually guilty, you're corporately guilty as humanity. He just just wants to press it in even further. You are absolutely hopeless. You are absolutely desperate. You are absolutely broken, both as individuals and as corporate humanity. We need a savior because we are thoroughly sinful. In verses 13 and 14, Paul takes a a bit of a spirit-inspired rabbit trail just to further his point. Um, that all sons and daughters of Adam share in his condemnation. 
Read this text with me. You don't have to read it out loud, but have your eyes on your scriptures. And I think you'll see how hard of a task we have ahead of us. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sin was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. What in the heck are you saying, Paul? You see, you read various commentators, and some commentators, they don't, they, most commentators don't exactly know how to translate or how to, how to interpret sin is not counted where there is no law. Is Paul saying that sinners were not judged before the law? That's not what he's saying. For one thing, if he was saying that, he'd be contra- contradicting the Old Testament. We have all kinds of Old Testament texts and instances that show that sinners are indeed judged before the law came. Sodom and Gomorrah was one of them, right? Lot's wife was another one. The judgment poured out on these people is telling us that even before the law, people were held accountable for sin. For another thing, Paul goes on to say in this passage that people died. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even before the law. In other words, their sin was punished by death. So then what is Paul actually trying to say here? I think it's important to keep in mind that Paul is building an argument to demonstrate that our association, our association as sons and daughters of Adam is enough to condemn us as sinners. I think here he takes away our right of comparison, doesn't he? You see, it's easy for me to look at my sins and compare that with the sins of a homosexual. Or it's easy for me to look at my sins and compare that with the sins of a murderer and say, I'm not, I'm clearly not as bad as those guys, right? Compared to them, my sins are relative misdemeanors. Paul takes away that quickly. He says, no. You stand condemned, not just because of what you've done or how bad you've done it. You stand condemned because you are a child of Adam. Because your father Adam is condemned. You know, our sin might not be like Adam. So he uses this idea of transgression. A transgression or a trespass is where there's a line drawn. It's a known line and you knowingly cross over it. Adam did that. God said, do not eat from the tree. Adam ate from the tree. That's a trespass, right? You've got this real general word for sin, which is kind of like missing the mark. But then you got the very specific word, which is you knew better, right? I told you not to eat the Easter candy on Good Friday. And there's chocolate on your mouth, which means you ate the Easter candy. You ate my Easter candy, on Good Friday. That's a, that's a trespass. That's not the same type of sin where my wife is in the kitchen cooking a cake for someone and I swipe my finger through the icing. Unknowingly that it's unknowing that it's for somebody else. I did a whoops, but what a great whoops it was because it was out of ignorance. I thought it was for me, you know, but it's still a wrongdoing. For a trespass to be done, it has to be known. You see, the law came and made known God's will. It made known God's commands, which means that everyone who breaks God's commands after the law is committing a trespass. What about these people in this intermediate time, though, from Adam to Moses? You see, there's a, there's a segment of history that they can't say, like Adam or like Israel, that they knew God's commands. They can't say it. There's, there's nowhere written out. There's no Ten Commandment tablets. There's, there's nothing like that. So, so surely... We're about to prove that, that it's by actions, right? Because these people should get off, right? They should be off the hook because they didn't knowingly trespass. And yet Paul says, wait a second, why did they still die then? You see, their sin wasn't like Adam's or like later Israel's. They still sinned, but not like the trespass. And yet they still died. Why? because they are children of Adam. By nature, by nature we are children of wrath. By nature we are fallen. 
Some of us need an infusion of biblical anthropology. We think too highly of ourselves. We think too highly of our own actions, but we fail to realize the place of Adam in our lives and just how powerful his sin is in reigning over all of us. How deep and dark our father's sin was and how we can't possibly hope to escape it on our own as if we're some of the better children of Adam. To be a man or a woman is an incredible paradox, especially after the fall. Our humanity brings us both glory and shame. It's Easter morning, Resurrection Day, so naturally we have a Narnian reference. In the book, Prince Caspian, it didn't have to be Resurrection Day, but especially today. In the book, Prince Caspian, Aslan lays out a theology of anthropology. He explains to the young prince, Caspian, he says, you come from the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, and that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. Let me just read that again. You come, this is, this is Aslan's words to you. You want to understand your humanity. Here it is. You come from Lord Adam and Lady Eve. And that is both honor enough to raise the heads of those of you that are so broken and depressed and down that you think you're not worthy. And yet it's shame enough to lower the heads of all the prideful people who think they're good enough. You see, the fact that we're honored because we're sons of Lord Adam is clear enough by nature of our image bearing. We were made to be image bearers of God. We like our noble kingly father, bear the image of God on earth in a way no other aspect of creation does. We are the image bearers of God. And yet, that honor is a little bit tainted, isn't it? Because we also bear the skeletons in the family closet. We also bear the shame of what Adam did. We share in his condemnation. We drink from his cup of sin. The gospel simultaneously, if you're hearing it rightly, the gospel simultaneously humbles and lowers and exalts. It humbles high heads and it raises humble heads. That's what the gospel does. For those of you who think you have no value, scripture reminds you, you're from the son, you're a son or daughter of Adam. You are an image bearer and God loves the children of Adam. But for those who think ourselves naturally good, we're somewhat better, we're decent people. Even if your sin is not as high-handed as everybody else's, the gospel reminds you that you are sinful and cast off just like your brothers and sisters. You are exiled from God. It doesn't matter how far out from, you might think you're a little closer to being outside of the garden than everybody else. Like, Everybody else is thrown way far out there, but you're a little closer. You can actually see the cherubim in the entrance to the east of Eden. You're still outside the garden. That's, that's the point. Adam was driven out of the garden. So were you. In him, you're condemned. Now, there's two ways to respond to Paul's message at this point. One is humble acceptance. Okay, we have to read this before we get to how Christ is the new Adam. We have to understand and accept this. If, if we respond in humility and we acknowledge our plight and our sinful nature in Adam, then now we're ready to be fully thankful and amazed at the fact that there's justification in a new Adam, in Christ. If we don't get to the point that we accept our culpability with Adam, we're not ready to fully appreciate what it means to have Jesus as the high priest before the throne of God. You're just not ready for it. The other response is to completely deny his implication, Paul's implications. All this talk about imputed sin is nonsense. How could one man's sin affect my status as righteous or unrighteous? Well, again, to take that approach... If you're going to undermine imputed sin, you better be ready to undermine imputed righteousness. If you're not guilty for Adam, 
then you're not righteous by Christ. Don't protest too much. If we are not guilty by association as children of Adam, then neither can we be declared righteous by our union with Jesus. Okay? Paul says, Adam's not the point. He's a type. He's a pattern. He's a person meant to point us to someone else. So, we get to move on from Adam to the one Adam points. In the next several verses, Paul contrasts the trespass of Adam's sin with the gift of grace that has come through Jesus' obedience. I love this section of Romans 5 because here you get equally the bad news, really, really bad, right? Death, 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 condemnation, brokenness, sinfulness, but then you get sweet contrast from the trespass to the gift. He goes from the transgression to the blessing. And like that, and it all hinges on who we're in, on who we accept as our head and our representative. The key phrase to be on the lookout for in this text, and I encourage you, if you've got your pen, if you've got a highlighter, then highlight it when you see it. The key phrase that will be on the lookout for is much more. Because that's the point. The gift is much more. It's not, it's not a gift that's equal to the trespass. You realize that, that what we have in Jesus, in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is not equivalent to what we did in sin. No, that's not what we have. We have a grace in Jesus that surpasses that's even greater than the trespass. He has to go through this redundant Greek that's like, how much, much more? Just to show you that grace is big. Adam's sin had universal consequences for humanity, but Jesus' obedience overcomes and, refe- and, the, and reverses the effects of sin and death in a far greater way. According to Paul, just let this set in, The free gift is not like the trespass. So let me just put this, if you've got this idea of sins on one side and grace on the other side, you see the gospel as a table. I am sinful, but Jesus died. My friends, that table where you set up this parallel chart of sin and grace doesn't work in Romans 5. You've got sin and you've got grace way out there. Not even comparable. Don't put it on the same chart. It's off the charts. It's a grace that is so much unlike the trespass, it's far more, way more. The gift differs in three specific ways. It's abundance, it's result, and it's restoration that it brings. The difference between sin's pervasiveness, how it spreads to all humanity, and grace's abundance can be seen in verse 15. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Sin is incredibly effective at what it does, isn't it? It was death. Incredibly effective, thorough even. Reaches down to the bones. But the grace of God outdoes sin. The grace of God outdoes sin. You see, the trespass dispersed death to all humanity, and many died, meaning all die. But the gift of grace abounded. The word there is multiplied for many. It multiplied. The word used for abounded means that it's not just that grace is just enough. In fact, you look up the Greek word, you do a little study, it's not just enough, it's more than enough. More than enough. Salvation in grace is not just a packed lunch to satisfy your need and hunger pains. It's a feast to fill you up and there's leftovers. It's like Thanksgiving Day, Easter Day, everything wrapped up with to-go boxes too small to carry it home. Overabundant feast. When it comes to a comparison of sin and grace, grace is much more. Your sins may run deep. My friends, I've been a pastor um, going on eight years this fall. 
a lead pastor here. I've been in ministry for about 12 years. I have brothers in ministry that have fallen in really deep ways that were un, like nobody knew. Nobody knew. They hid it so well. They covered up so well. I've been, I've been in ministry long enough that I know that those same types of sins are here right now at this moment. I know that there are things in your life that you remember doing, things that you have tried hard to forget, things that at the, the slightest little flash of a memory just makes your face red and your heart thump because you cannot even think about that coming back out into light. You notice that, that pit in your stomach when you think about what you did and you think about you can't wipe the dirt off of that. Sin runs deep. God's grace runs deeper. Your sins lie in dark chasms with no bottom. God has poured out a grace from a cup without bottom. There's a reason we sing your mercy is more. We mean that. Not sufficient. There's a reason the song doesn't say your mercy is enough. That would be true. To be absolutely biblical and 100% centered on the text, we must sing your mercy is more. In Christ, my friends, you do not just have an empty cup that is now filled to the brim. You have a cup that overflows. Not only is God's grace more abundant than the pervasiveness of sin, it, is also, it also renders a very different result than sin. Verse 16 says, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Very simple here. Adam's sin led to condemnation. What is condemnation? It's a public declaration of your worthiness to be judged. Right? Put it in the papers. Put it on Twitter. Let CNN and Fox News have it. You're guilty. Condemnation's been out. In Adam, you have condemnation. But the free gift is so much different. Adam brings condemnation. The free gift brings justification, which is what? It's a public legal declaration that a person has a righteous status before God. You see, condemnation tells all the world, guilty, worthy of damnation, judged, should go to hell. Justification, God says, He's good. That's what we get in the free gift. Adam's sin pushed us out. The free gift brings us back in. Sin brings alienation. The gift brings atonement. Adam tried to be like God, and as a result, all humanity was exiled from God. Jesus is God, and by nature of his death, brought all humanity home to God. The free gift is not like the trespass. And then the third and final major difference that we get between sin and grace is that grace has restored mankind. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more, there it is again, will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. I love how he says one man, right? That means through no one else. One man. In all creation, under the heavens and the earth, there's only one name by which we can be saved. Only one man can bring this. As the book of Genesis tells, tells us, Adam was made to have dominion on the earth. That's what it means to be an image bearer, right? God says, let us make man in our own image. And then he says, go and have dominion, exercise dominion over the earth and subdue it, right? That's part of our image bearing work. Well, in Genesis 3, Adam sins. And what does he do? He abdicates the throne and he hands it over to death. Instead of having dominion, Adam is dominated. All of his children are dominated. But the gift of grace 
restores the dominion that was lost. You know, when I first read this, I thought it was saying that grace reigns or Jesus reigns in this passage. So I had to read it again. Those who receive, that's those of us who believe in Jesus, those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift, what did they do? Reign in life. Isn't that interesting? It's almost as, as if the gospel restores sinners to their true humanity. Sin has rendered us almost less than human, where we're dominated by sin and death. And the gospel says, have dominion again. Be the priest kings God made you to be. Be the image bearers the maker, the maker desires. Rule and have dominion on the earth and let it be good and blessed dominion. It's like the gospel sets back the clock and says, let's start over. Broken, dominated image bearers no more. Instead, dominion-making image bearers that bring God glory. So in this verse, Paul tips his hand, I think, and gives us a peek at his resurrection theology. You see, he believes that the grace of God has pushed back death and restored life. Believers will no longer language, languish under the reign of death. Death reigns no more. Instead, we reign in life. Believers, if you ever have a self-esteem issue, you're destined to reign. It just says it, okay? I, 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 you know, as much as I'd like to say it, I reign, it says that I will reign. Well, it says we will reign, so we, we get to reign. We get the dominion back. We get to be the people God made us to be. We will reign not in spite of death, not until death, not after death. We will reign in life. There's his resurrection theology. It's a reign that goes on and on and on. You see, in the gospel then, we have experienced a great reversal. It was Adam, and, and death was not even thought of, and then we have death on top, dominating Adam. Gospel comes, knocks death off the throne. Adam reigns again. Amazing restoration. So let's sum up. I've got to warn you, Paul's summaries are not any short, any shorter than what he's already said. So we're going to have to be brief if we're going to, if we're going to get to uh, our Easter lunch and if I get to my Easter chocolates. Therefore, in other words, and therefore, or now therefore, it's a clear, Paul's, Paul's landing his plane. And Paul likes to land the plane for a long time. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made righteous, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So many were made sinners. There we go. Scratch that, reverse it. By one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now, we've already considered everything he said about the trespass and how, what that sin was. But what does Paul have in mind when he talks about the other man's act, single act of righteousness and obedience? Moreover, how does that single act lead to justification, life, and making many righteous? It's here that, Jesus, that Paul brings the cross into the spotlight. He shows us the cross. Not only was Jesus obedient in all of life, you see, Jesus had many acts of obedience, right? He never did not do the will of the Father. But there is a single act where he was obedient even to the point of death, even the death on a cross, right? Philippians 2, verse 8. It's that singular act, that one act, that where Jesus is crushed on the cross, where the snake's teeth sink into his heel, where the pierced hands hang, where he bleeds, where he bears the curse with the thorns. It's on that cross, that single act of obedience to death, that we get creation working backwards. No more death, no more just brokenness, no more alienation from God, but instead justification, life. Can I just give you good news? We, we live in a world where so many people are dying right now. The graveyards are filled with our loved ones, aren't they? 
through the single act comes life. Single act of obedience. Where Jesus died for our sins. Adam plunged the world into judgment. Jesus brings the world back up out of the drowning waters of judgment and gives them access to the throne. But that's not all. In the final two verses, Paul highlights the abundance that has come in Jesus. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded, there it is again, all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, if there's anyone still thinking that they can work their way to a better status, he said, hey, look, look, once again, the law can't do that. The law won't do that. The law has come to increase sin. In other words, it's come to shine a big spotlight on your sin. If you come to the law to try to get better, it won't work. It's not going to happen. Now that we have the law, all of us know undeniably that we're sinful. And thoroughly sinful at that. But where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. Isn't it crazy? The more aware you become of your sin, the more aware of how amazing grace is. Man, there's, there's, there's just a beauty and a sweetness to redemption that the more bitter my own sin tastes in my mouth, the sweeter the cross is. I mean, those of us that just kind of have this little kind of tart view of sin, where it's just, a, it's just unpleasant, but they also don't have that sweet of a, of a drink of grace. My friends, it's, it's a bitter drag with sin. It's disgusting. It's not just pickle juice. It's gross. It's poison. And the more bitter you see your sin, the more ready you're ready to drink in the sweetness, the honey mead, salvation. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, there's a very important phrase that we have to end with. As sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through the righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, Adam's fall was death's coronation. Because of sin, the throne of dominion was handed over to him, and death ruled happily for generations until Jesus came. Adam sinned, Jesus obeyed. Adam's sin brought death, but Jesus' death brought an end to death. In Jesus, we see the first fruits. In Jesus, coming out of the tomb, beating death. That's what we see now because our new Adam has obeyed, died, and rose again. Now, all those who trust in this new Adam will also die and raise again. That's the first fruits. We will live because our new and better Adam has accomplished a greater work. It's the end of death's tyranny. You see, it's at the empty tomb that we see King Death deposed, dethroned, and replaced with a new king. Before Christ, nothing but the reign of death. Now, the reign of grace. Isn't it amazing that, you know, when it talks about, we know that Jesus is king, right? But Talking as if grace is king. Well, because Jesus is king, grace is king. Grace is king because Jesus is king. We live in an age where grace reigns, not death and shame. Can you imagine if the most gracious being in all the universe were to become the president of every nation, the king, the dignitary, the head honcho, the one who, whose commands were law? Can you imagine if sheer grace ruled? Well, that's what we have in Jesus, my friends. You don't have to imagine. Grace reigns. That shameful bitterness that leaves a back taste in your mouth when you think about how dirty you are. Grace reigns. You see, that shame and that sin and that brokenness is bad news when death was the tyrant. He had a very thin reason to put you to death. He was a king that loved to execute. 
What's that? They, li- they watched pornography? Kill them! What's that? They spoke gossip? Kill them! Now we live not with tyrant death, but with King Grace, who gives life and not death. Friends, because your new Adam lives, you can have life. In all of this, speaking of landing planes, Paul proclaims the worthiness of Jesus. In a way, it's as if Paul is asking if Jesus is worthy of all our hope and faith. Is he worthy of our trust? Is he worthy to be the center of our life? Is he worthy to be the crux of our atonement? Is he worthy of all the worship and the praise we can give? Is he worthy of all this abundant language we've used about him, expressing our desperation, not just our need, our desperation for him? Romans 5 answers, he is. Because he is the new and better Adam, because he is the one through whose obedience came life, Because he is the risen one through whose dominion grace reigns, he is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory. We're about to sing in just a minute. He is the root of David and the lamb who died to ransom the slave. From every people and tribe, from every nation and tongue, he has made us a kingdom and priest to God to reign with the son. Is he worthy? And all God's people said, He is. Let's pray, and then we're going to get to take the Lord's Supper together. Father God, we recognize that what we're doing in this Lord's Supper is just a foretaste of the great feast to come. Adam ate and brought us famine, but Jesus hungered and thirsted. And has brought us a feast. Father God, we get to partake of the Lord's Supper knowing that it's only because Jesus had a broken body and spilt blood. And because he came out of the tomb, leaving death defeated. That we can eat and enjoy. Father, thank you for all that you have done. We pray this in your son's name.